땅에 왔던 만왜 가능한 마인 나이 ドヤイタランゲトゥネイドヤイタパパエタコトネイドヤキロトドヤキワホドヤラトンコウヘアトゥキタポイリュリキタポトゴトゴキタクルタギハンガハイレンガマテオテナマライオテナマライハイレキタ
Goodbye, hooked rugs of poodles. Hello, knitted donuts and crocheted tomato sauce bottles. Just goes to show, eh, what our nanny's told us all along. There's no better satisfaction than that acquired through something made with your own hands. As well as bringing up a young whanau, and we're talking three tamariki under three here, Natalie Friend finds time to craft mohair felt balls. And while the initial motivation was as a means of keeping her oldest child, Maide, entertained, it's now become a slightly obsessive, yet potentially financially successful, business. On what must be one of the windiest days in... Wellington. I've made my way across the Rimutaka, just about getting blown away in the little red car, and I've made my way to Featherston, where I am now sitting at the kitchen table with Natalie Friend. Hi. <laughs> Kia ora, Natalie. <laughs> Who is feeding her three-month-old daughter, Grace. Yes, while the other two are fast asleep. Now, we're sitting at your kitchen table, and I'm surrounded by these amazing, soft balls. Now, this is this is like a craft that you've picked up? Yeah, um, I guess when I was pregnant with my second baby, I did a little craft, like an adult education workshop out here in Featherston. I think it was about $40 to learn how to make felted things, so flat felting and um, and wet felting. And then from there, I guess it evolved. I started making lots of these little balls for my little boy, um, who was probably around 15 months at the time, who loved to throw things. And he would be hiffing all sorts of stuff around the house. So I thought, well, if I have this basket of soft balls for him to throw, then he can still throw a lot without um, putting dents in the walls and things. And then, of course, I, it kind of, I started making them for um, people, friends of mine who were having babies, and they were asking me where I was buying them from. And so that's when I decided to start trying to make them to sell in markets and things like that. Can you explain to me the felting process? Okay, so with the balls, it's a combination of um, wet felting, which is using carded wool and kind of luxe soap flakes and warm water. And um, wet felting, you put your carded wool into the water and then you kind of... um, you roll them. So the thing that felts fibres together is friction. So um, the friction of rolling the ball is what felts the fibres together. Um, and that's kind of how wet felting works. Whereas I decorate a lot of the balls. Um, we're using needle felting. Yeah, so what I'm looking at uh, are you know half a dozen balls on the table. And there are some that are decorated with words. Like there's a yellow ball over here that says Corfei. And I can see a little pig and stars. So you pin felt them? They could, felt yeah, them? it's called needle felting. So that's using dry wool on dry wool. And it's a long, quite sharp needle, which you soon get very practised at not um, pricking yourself with them because it hurts. And it has, a, it has like a barbed end on it. So as it's going in and out of the the fibres of the felt it's binding them together so you're almost kind of tacking the pattern on and then after that I go through a kind of wet felting phase again where I wet felt everything so the layer of pattern is then wet felted so that it all becomes one flat surface. So these balls are slightly smaller than tennis balls how long does it take for you to make one? Uh, on average I worked out about an hour the most time consuming thing is decorating them so depending on how intricate the pattern is that kind of extends your time like to put one star on a ball would maybe take me five five minutes obviously I've got a lot quicker at it because I've made a lot of balls since I first started (laughs) I've been doing it for about a year now so I am a a lot quicker than I used to be and um, things like these, I have little ones with little animal faces on them. Those take about an hour to decorate because it's it's literally drawing a, an image by hand with the carded wool and the needle. They're incredibly soft to touch. Yeah, they're made of 100% merino wool. So um, if you imagine a merino blanket, it's obviously a much more solid, denser version, but they still have that soft tactile quality. I have um, my first few fairs I did, I kept my case of balls open and the whole fair, people just couldn't stop touching them. And so in the end, I put a, 
I ended up putting them in a case because it got, got to the point where I'd spend my whole fear straightening little balls up in a tray and now I have samples but they are a very tactile object that people just want to grab and and feel what it is. Yeah, I, the first fear I ever did was the Featherstone Christmas one and that I sold, I sold quite a few of them and then I applied to Craft 2.0 which is kind of like a, it's uh, one of the, I guess one of the most popular craft fairs in Wellington where the emphasis on um, what people are selling is that it has to be handmade and that you have to be the person, person selling it is the person who made it. And so I started doing that about a year ago. It was my first craft 2.0, and then since then I've done another two. So hopefully this year, you have to be selected to be let in, so hopefully this year I will get to do another few. And you're, um, and of course every time you go back, you look at trying how to expand what you're making so that, that you can show your audience something different. Natalie, what do you think is going on here? I mean, is craft the new black? It feels a little bit like it. I mean, my background is in in curatorial work, but this is before I was having the children. I was working at a gallery in Upper Hutt, and there seems to be this resurgence of craft that I don't. I'm not sure. It's definitely a more contemporary craft. So I hate to. Say, I mean, I don't. I hate to say the whole quilt, the whole quilt and jam thing, is. It's kind of it's kind of the stuff that we associate with nanas. Yeah, yeah, but it's a younger generation of doing it, so they've just got a younger twist on it. it a lot of it is still the same techniques that a lot of us have learnt from our nanas, but um, and I guess it's there's a lot more kind of home decor as well as things that are that are kind of purposeful. And you know what's what's interesting is that you're getting a, I mean, are you getting a generation of Māori crafters who aren't necessarily finding themselves closeted in the making kete or having um, coloured stone or putting a kōwhaiwhai pattern on something? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely like, uh, and I think it, for me personally, I find that there is, like I make coloured sets of balls, so fiddle, kikorangi, and um, and kōwhai, yeah. And so I, for me personally, I find that to be able to incorporate that on the balls, uh, it gives it something different that is particular to New Zealand and who I and who I am. And also, it gives people an opportunity uh, to have these things to give to their children, which expand their kind of vocabulary, which a lot more people are open to now than. Than, than probably what I feel like they used to be, yeah. Do you think this resurgence in craft then has ended up also taking place at a time where there's more ac- acceptability of things Māori? Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to feel like say that it's almost become a little bit trendy as well. I mean, we've we've kind of been through that. We've been through that phase where things like the Māori patterning was misused and and now people are getting a bit smarter about what they're buying in terms of what Māori imagery are on it, is on it and and I guess they're just a little bit more educated in terms of buying something that is in, within the correct context of the culture. Um, museums and things are making shows uh, more and more about it. We've got positions and galleries that are catering just to Māori and Pacific arts, and that's happening more and more throughout the regions and not just in the main centres. So I think in general people are seeing more correctly used Māori imagery, so therefore they're getting more educated about what um, what is the right way to, to buy, I guess. So felt balls, your... I mean, like we're looking at half a dozen here. I mean, do they end up becoming, you know, as a fellow crafter myself, you end up becoming slightly obsessed with things. So you will sit there and make, 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 make. Yeah, I mean, I've always had that within, when I'm making something and doing something, I I think it, it part of the creative process is that you do become quite, quite obsessive um, in what you're doing. And I mean, it, when... When I'm at home doing it, I'm just there focused on doing it. And a lot of it's quite intricate work. And sometimes I feel a little bit mad sitting there prodding away at this ball with a felt needle trying to get the exact line straight. And I have to sit there and say to myself, "This no one else is going to notice if that fibre is not is slightly straying into another colour. So there is definitely that kind of yeah obsessive-compulsive nature to it that you really hope that no one notices you're doing sometimes because <laughs> they think you're mad. <laughs>
You know what, Natalie, I mean, these are beautiful. They feel like I'm holding an artwork, one I could afford. <laughs> and that's the benefit of craft, is it does have that affordability about it. It's affordable for me to make. And... Um, and it's affordable for people to buy. I mean, tradition, like before I started having kids and doing this and I had money to spend on things that, um, you know, that, that, well, that I chose to, I used to do a lot of photography for exhibitions. But, of course, the cost of that when you've got three children to feed and on a single income just isn't justifiable to be producing 12 photographic works for an exhibition. So this is affordable in that the materials are cheap. Um, it's non-toxic when I make it. I don't dye any of the walls myself. It's already dyed when I buy it. And I can do it between the kitchen and the laundry, which I spend the majority of my time in anyway. Stop it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Stop I call, it. I call washing my new lifestyle <laughs> choice because that's what happened. <laughs> um, so it works, you know, for me at the moment. Um, and, uh, yeah, obviously with, with making more and more... They get more interesting, and of course, like you push yourself, even like creatively, to make new things and try different. different Are you thinking about making blocks? Blocks. I haven't got to, um, uh, my next venture is fruit, and awesome. I've started making doing flat felted headbands for little girls with flowers and things on. So I'm thinking maybe fruit headbands and things like that is my next yeah. my next thing. So we're looking at you get merino. Yeah, merino carded wool. It kind of looks like candy floss, um, and it's all cut brightly coloured. Oh. <laughs> and um, you buy it, I buy it like that. So you go into the, the woman who sells it, sells locally in Greytowns, so it's about 15 minutes up the road, and um, and you go in there and it's just like these big long kind of shelves in an old sheep shearing shed that are full of huge like kind of two kilo bags of wool and so you can just choose your colours and then you pack it pack a bag full and head home. Um but you wouldn't you'd be surprised at how much a kilo that there is just over a kilo of carded wool. So they're very light, like each ball weighs twenty grams for the bigger ones. So out of grams. a kilo of wool, how many balls would you be able to make? Well up to forty or fifty. Okay. So it's quite a you can get quite a lot out of um and I make a lot of sometimes people stuff them with polystyrene in the centre or they'll stuff them with something else but I like the idea that I can say that they're completely completely made of merino wool and And you know while they're soft to touch as I'm squeezing it they are solid yeah you can felt them so they're a little bit softer but I like that kind of durability about them especially when I make them I mean they're solid you've got to actually put some effort into squeezing it yeah and obviously like um People have bought them for their cats as well as their kids. Yeah. Um, they're quite durable in that not even a, our dog can really get through it. He has to really chew at it to get through one. So what happens? I mean, can you throw them in the washing machine? Yes, you do. Once they get dirty and slobbered on, you do, can just wash them and they'll come up like they were when you bought them. They do wear like wool, so they will pill and things like that and fuzz up a bit. But, I mean, you get that when you buy a woolen object. Gosh, I'm so done. They're neat. I've never seen anything like them before. Yeah, it's really they're nice. I enjoy making them. I think is the, is the, I think is kind of how I can make so many and keep doing it. So your suppliers are local. I mean, is there a bit of a? This seems to be a bit of a craft-oriented community. I think a lot of people. It's cheap to live here, and there's there's. Lots of people around them. Obviously, if you are going to kind of choose to stay home and be self-employed by making kind of creative objects, you it, it doesn't necessarily pay the bills. You know, you often need a day job. But being living in the wider upper, the lifestyle's cheaper. It's cheap, so people do tend to migrate here to be able to afford the luxury of um, spending time on things like this. Well, for some friends and I got together. And who he, we had solely met through crafting, and um, and we decided there was a niche mar- like a niche market kind of here, or an opportunity to to create a craft fair similar to Craft Two Point and that we would be offering a fair that offered only handmade things made in New Zealand, and obviously um, the sellers would have to be there to sell the work. 
And so we put an email out and we had a high level of applicants. We probably could have filled the fair twice by the end of it. It was the first one we did. We called it Craft Country and had it in Greytown, which seems like it generates a lot of interest for people going there to shop, to spend. They come out for the, from Wellington for their weekends for the kind of a bit of a country excursion, I guess, from Wellington. And, um, and Greytown was a great place because people go there to shop and kind of buy. It sells. There's a lot of nice things in the shops there. And um, we had it just pre-Christmas, so that... Greytown always kind of reminds me of a countrified Parnell. Yes, yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, they've got the Trillis Cooper outlet shop there. It's definitely a more high-end kind of um, place to shop. And so we thought, well, perfect place to have it. And there was there's a beautifully renovated hall there, which has got the library in it. And so we called for stallholders and filled the hall and with craftspeople making all sorts of things. Um, probably majority of people there were locally based, so that's right through the Wairarapa, so people from, um, obviously, Featherston, I think, oh, yes, there was many from Greytown, Carterton. So there is a lot of people here that you can kind of, that were interested in coming to sell stuff at the fair. And you've got dates set for the rest of the year? Um, well, we were asked if we were going to do them throughout the year, but we decided just to leave it at Christmas time. And there's been an opportunity that's come up um, that may happen or may not, that there's local retail space to rent in Featherston, and we're thinking about opening a little craft shop there that can, obviously because rents are cheaper out here, we can offer to sell um objects at a lower commission because often when you're crafting an object the time you spend in it you never there's not a lot of room in terms of um how much money you can make from making it so when you kind of go into a retail market if people are to put a markup on your on your objects then um there often isn't a lot left for you, you and you don't want to be doing it for free and for the love of it um well you so could how do you price um, generally, I guess a lot of it is what people will pay for it. So you have to be, you know, I guess you have to kind of be careful that you don't get too excited and don't spend five, or no, ten hours on one object because someone may not see the value in it to kind of buy, to spend your, give you $100 for one ball. So, um, yeah, and also um, for me... Are the balls a, $100? No, they're not $100. <laughs> Yeah, but you're talking about the time taken to oh, do no, it no, they don't take and the time. hours. I have to stop myself from going too crazy and putting, I don't know, some trying to paint a masterpiece on them. Um, because I just wouldn't. I think I, the one thing I did make was a big long string this year that's had mere krihi mete oh, written nice. on it, which was like 12 balls, and it took me hours, and in the end I thought, no, I'll keep that for home yeah, yeah. because um, I liked it and I knew that I couldn't sell it for a hundred and something dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and my husband's sitting there rolling his eyes as I'm making it, going, no, this will be really cool. <laughs> Spending hours of work on it. Um, yeah, so the the balls kind of range from the cheapest is like $5, and then the more expensive sets are like 45 so that's for Māori colour sets and number sets and stuff. Um, but yeah, I guess the materials and the time, I mean, I I wouldn't say that I got paid. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not getting paid hundred thousand dollars a year to do it but in saying that I didn't um I studied I did a forty dollar course to study how to make these so my in terms of the time and money invested in learning how to do it it's not really kind of comparable to say doing a degree and yeah so do you think this is something you will carry on or as long as you and the kids are still at home yeah I'd like to keep doing it I've done it for a year now and I do we have got plenty of ideas of the things I like to do? And it, I like next summer. I'd really like to do most of the fairs. The craft fairs are the are the most fun things to do because you get to go out for the day without your children and <laughs> and go and socialise with all these other crafting people. And of course, you get to sell your stuff as well. So it's a little bit like a day out with the ladies, kind of compared to normally. Um, so yeah, as long as as long as it keeps selling and it's you know, it's worth my time, and I've still got the energy to do it. Um, then definitely, I'll I'll keep trying to squeeze it in every in every moment that I have. But yeah, next summer I'm hoping to do a lot of fears once my youngest baby is a bit older and not needing me quite so much. Because at the moment she is three months old. Yeah, she's three months old. So yeah, 
And what about the, um, you, you, you've got little testers, your boy and your other girl, they, do they test the balls out for you? Yeah, the, the animal ones were the most popular that I'd made recently because I had to, Mairi, who is now, he's going to be three in April, um, he was the one stealing them and running away with them and I have to kind of hide them away from them. <laughs> so if they see them, they just grab them and run away with them and I have to kind of find them all after they've been thrown under the couch and under the TV cabinet and things like that. So that's how you know they're durable? Yeah, yeah, they've been <laughs> well and truly tested. And they got lots of the reject ones where there were some real duds <laughs> at the beginning. And also I have the process down, like I've got, I've, it's a lot quicker now for me to make them. You know, when you were experimenting on how to make something work, I can, now I know how to make them a lot faster than I did. Mm. I mean the colours are glorious this is the candy floss what you're describing as candy floss and these colours are just so lovely there's a really lovely kind of they're almost cloud paint, yellow greens blues oh my god that pink and that purple's gorgeous Okay, so you... So we start off, I start off with the carded wool, and what I've been doing for consistency is weighing it. Because originally I started out and I was like, oh yeah, I'll make a few balls this size, and I just would grab random bits of wool, but now I have like a... I do 20 gram, 10 gram, and then I have 5 gram, and then I weigh... I also make beads for necklaces and things, which are 1 gram of wool. Um, so when you're felting, generally it usually shrinks in about two-thirds of the size... Wow. So um, so I was kind of a little surprised when you said that's a kilo of wool and you'll only get 40 balls out of that. I thought, oh, you should get a couple of hundred. Yeah, no, it shrinks quite considerably, which is how you get the density in oh, the yeah. ball. So the more you shrink it, kind of the harder and more dense it is. Um, this one here that I've got, that I'm halfway through making, this one I weighed and it's a 10 gram ball. So it's currently kind of halfway through the process and it's the same size as a completed 20 gram ball so it will end up half the size wow at the moment it's the same size yeah and it will end up kind of almost a little bit quite a bit smaller than um than the 20 gram finished version so what i do is i weigh out 20 grams of wool and it's in long kind of fluffy strips um and then kind of separate Kind of the bigger the ball, the longer you want your strips of wool because you want a nice continuous um, kind of strip that you can, so you can roll, you can kind of roll your balls up evenly. Because if you don't roll them up evenly, it's kind of the secret to getting them round. Otherwise, they can end up with a lump yeah. out one side or something like that. Yeah. So you kind of like feather the wool out so that it's a so that it's a little bit kind of wider. And then I usually start, I haven't weighed this one, but um, kind of start by just making, it's like making, rolling a ball of wool, but you're kind of doing it with these big, large, fluffy strips. So to me, what it looks like is that it kind of looks like long strips of cotton wool, actually. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. So I kind of wrap it around my, around my finger and make a bit to start with. Oh, and then you just start wrapping. And then I start wrapping it round. Do you do it in like an eight f- formation? So that it... Yeah, to, to start with I kind of just do like a little block yeah. so that I've got a decent base. And the other thing when you're felting is that if you can cross, cross hatch your fibres. He's just woken up. <laughs> um, if you can kind of make your fibres cross over, um, then it means that the, when they felt, they're kind of felting against each other, which gives you a tighter... Oh, right. So if you can get them kind of working in all directions, well, evenly kind of. So you do this dry? Yep, you start out with the dry wool, and then once you've got your ball of wool, that's when you put it into your warm water and your Lux soap flakes. And the water has to be nice and hot, that's the other thing that works well. If your water is really hot, so I'll, I boil the jug and then wait for it to cool down slightly, and you can just fit your hands in. It's kind of like a hot potato, I guess. Yes, I have tried making larger balls, which are double the size, which are 40 grams, but they are a bit problematic in that the fibres move around quite a lot. Yeah. And so you tend to, they're, they're not as evenly. 
But there are other ways to do this. You could needle felt the whole thing, but in terms of time, it takes a long time to bind a lot of fibres together just through needle felting. So basically you're just taking strips of the what looks like cotton wool to me but is the felt and you're just winding it into a ball. Yep. It's, it's, it's yeah. And you wind it to the well, the weight. Yeah, of what the you weight want. of what I want. So I have a friend of mine, her daughter comes and she's like my little employee. She comes and weighs mm-hmm. my wool every Tuesday afternoon. Wow. So I pay her to come and weigh into little twenty gram lot ten gram lots and then I can because it takes quite a while to sit here and weigh a kilo of wool into 10 gram lots. And when you're making beads, you're weighing um, weighing it into 1 gram lots. So I have a pair of digital scales because without that, you wouldn't be able to do it because it's so it's so light. Yeah, so you literally just keep winding it until, you get, until you've used up your amount that you've weighed. And then after that, you put it into your hot, hot soapy water and kind of roll it like a ball in your hand but you want it nice and kind of slimy so that it doesn't move you kind of what you want to do is you want it hot enough when you do your first felt and soapy enough is that it binds all the top fibers together so that then when you go through your next process you've it's all contained in one ball already because your top layer of fibers are bound together and then what? Dry in the sun. Well, I cheat and use the tumble dryer, which is like <laughs> my little secret that I do. Everyone tells to me, how do you get your balls so round? And now everybody will know um, that I use my tumble dryer because it beats them, it beats them into, into shape, makes them beautiful and round. <laughs> Gosh, that must leave a bit of trail in the lint though. Oh, I have, this, <laughs> I have an old dryer which Reuben keeps on telling me is a fire hazard and he's going to throw away and I'm like, no, you can't mm. take my old dryer, I need it. And the timer's broken on it so I have to like set a timer but it is the best because because it's so old it like is a really hot dryer so yeah, there's a bit of a there's a bit of an art to it. It's a little bit like cooking, and you can definitely and overcook this is them. stuff that you've learned from the first ones you've made. Yeah. Yeah, from all the experiments and over felting them, they can kind of overcook them, and then you have to start again and kind of wet felt them again, and um, where you have to sit there and pick bits of lint off them <laughs> for like ages. So there's, I definitely learned all of these things from streamlining my technique and yeah, not overcooking them, I guess. Yeah, but it does feel like cooking, cooking wool. Kia ora, Natalie Friend, accompanied by her three-month-old daughter, Grace, and joined towards the end there by her older boy, Maire. The inspiration behind her felt balls business on what was one of the windiest days in the Wairarapa. And we really felt today crossing over those Rumutaka ranges that day. Neha, Justine. Ida. Now, if you like, go to our webpage, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash te ahika. That's T-E-A-H-I-K-A-A for photos. And you'll see for yourself the felted ball end product. They're pretty cool. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justine Murray. And you're listening to Te Ahika on Radio New Zealand National. You could mistake this for an ad. It's not. It means that the programme you've just seen was in some way sponsored by Te Mangai Paho, the Māori Broadcasting Funding Agency. Late last year, five new members were appointed to the board, including its new chairman, Professor Piri Shasha. Justine spent some time with him asking, does the new membership mean a new direction? Piri, you were recently appointed as the chairman of, of Te Mangai Paho, which is the Māori Broadcasting Funding Agency. How did you come about to this role and one of your yeah, many well, other roles? Yeah, I was a little bit surprised, but I've, I've been now here in the public service for a while and my sort of basic uh, approach, basically, is to make yourself available. Particularly as you get, become senior now, I have to accept I'm in a, in a senior face around the place. You're elite. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's about uh, being making your skills and, and sometimes uh, people who have, have the sort of experience and, dare I say, depth, I hope there's some wisdom in the depth, um, then you bring a sense of uh, assurance and um, 
people become to, to trust and a little bit easy because they know um, this kind of person might be at the helm or is a, is a part of whatever is uh, being conceived. So I said I would make myself available to the board and then was later asked to be uh, the chair and so they had to deliberate given my other roles and so on. Um, but finally said yes and um, uh, well here I am basically but I guess it's about sort of having you know the, the uh, experience and the skill base and with, with a whole range of things it's not just our real uh, which I think is the key mm. um, but then it really does help if you've had other board experience you've had other chairman experiences and um, you've worked a bit in the public service or and you've got knowledge of our people and and so on to people who perhaps don't know a lot about their mangai bahu, what are the general functions of their mangai bahu? Well, it's this autonomous um, uh, funding agency. It's a language, it's a Māori language sector agency, and it's there to provide funding for uh, Māori broadcasting, and that falls in used to be just about two categories, which was TV and and radio, but now there's e-broadcasting, which is sort of a new area, the the net the mobiles, the YouTubes, the, all the rest of it, because that's actually become increasingly so. There's another form of media. Uh, mm. We're doing pilot studies in there, and that sort of brings you to questions, well, how far is this dollar going to go? But in the meantime, the funding and the support for our broadcasters and uh, production people in, for Māori television and um, iwi radio in particular... Uh, they still form the heart of what we do. Mm. Pity with uh, with this year being an election year and of recent years, public money's you know tightening up. It, it may be in the early stages yet, but how does how do you forecast um, in terms of of distribution of funding that Te Mangai Pāho can um, allocate, or or are they limited perhaps this year? Well, I think like the the kind of whole spending environment that we're in with government is that. Um, and I and, and I think you know it's it's quite justified. It's it's actually about working more effectively and efficiently, and finding processes that actually tell you that you're making improvements. No more money, but you're you're, you're working harder. You're a bit of bang, bigger bang for your buck, if you like. But you've actually got to have the processes to do that. So. For example, if you're looking for Māori language outcomes, they've got to be in the planning and you've got to take that message out to the people uh, that you're going to receive proposals from so that, so that you get proposals that have got this content in it. Then you've got to monitor it. Well, then first of all, you've got to decide who you give it to. So you look around and say, well, I think we, this looks really exciting because you're looking for programs that are informative, that are original, that are, are creative, of very good value, and they are. I mean, the one thing that you have to look at Māori television, the radio stations, social change, but what you've got is a large volume of good quality and cost-effective programming. That's 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 how I would describe what you're seeing with Māori television. How much money Te Mangai Pāho allocates every year? Well, in this, this next year, it's going to be 53 million. That's quite a big put there. But the, I'd, I'd have to see the list of exact what figures go. Um, you'd be pleased. I'm able to say that you know the cost-effective um, work of this. This is about four cents in the dollar cost operation. Uh, so it's not a bit, a, you know. The bulk of it is going out there. Um, the biggest part of that goes to uh, Māori Television. There's 21 iwi stations that are supported in their broadcasting as well. So if we could um, imagine um, the funding of Te Mangai Pāho being Ariwana bread, mm-hmm. it would seem that about three-quarters of the Ariwana goes to TV. Just the... the, the I mean, all I say, the, the biggest percentage... Um, aroha mai, uh, taurawa... Uh, but I, I, I know I'm just saying that um, uh, it was certainly the biggest percentage. Mm. 
Uh, but, you know, TV if you want to follow this up with the paper, we'll actually get to you exactly where the, where the, where the proper spend is. Ko hau te koha, ko hau te takitaki, ko taburu tū te whare, ko rongo marae roa te marae, ko pōti riri kore te rohe. Mena te pepeha e waihotia mai rei e he nā re matua, te roa mātou tīpuna kia mātou. Nō reira kāri te whakahua maunga pera rara, engari ko te takitaki e he taia patera, ko hau te koha koha e āhei te whakahuru mai, Ngā hau e koana, ko rongo marae roa te marae o te atu o te rongo mau tērā. A ko te marae he nō tūho na tikanga, engari tō mātou marae tōne ngō ko rongo marae roa. Ko te pōti riri kore, ko rongei au hekeaki te awa o pōranga hau ki roto o te wairarapa. Te pōti riri kore o te wairarapa e kore rā te whawhai te riri. E kuhu ki roto i tō mātou nā arohe. Nō reira, kuera. Kia ora, Professor Pirishasha, Chairman of Māori Broadcasting Funder, te Māngai Pāho. There's more details on our webpage where there are also photo galleries of events that we've covered. You can also join our Facebook page or even drop Mariah and I an email at teahika at radionz.co.nz. Bona sarin tu teahika, Radio Nationaland. This year, the Right Honourable Sir Anand Satyanand's five-year term as Governor-General ends. Prime Minister John Key has hinted that the new Governor-General may not necessarily have a legal background as many, but not all former Governor-Generals have come from that profession. That wasn't the case when Brigadier Sir Bernard Ferguson followed in the footsteps of his grandfathers and father and took up the role as Governor-General in 1962. This archival recording is from the end of his term in 1967 when at his Aki he thanked the people of New Zealand for their hospitality. The event was held in Gisborne at the Poho Orawiri Pa. Now you Māori pai nei? Tēnā koutou katoa. I tēnē rā, e tu mokimoki ana hau ki mua i a koutou ina ka wehi ana maua i a koutou. Tēnā maua, ka haere rā e ngā reke te mohi o koutou, ka hoki hoki mai ngā mahara ki a koutou i ngā wā katoa. And we are very sad. This is the last time we shall be here for the competitions. I'll never forget the first time we were here when the set piece was not crimined, which we've been hearing tonight, but that wonderful hymn, Fierce Rage of the Tempest All the Deep. And I rather stepped beyond what I should have done to ask all the choirs to come onto the stage here and sing it together at the end of the evening. And the Governor-General's wishes that night were realised when the six choirs combined to sing Goihu Toku Hepara, or The Lord is My Shepherd.
Towards the end of his duty in New Zealand, the Governor-General and his family were farewelled by both Māori and Pākehā. Into two major tribes, Geordie was accepted and promoted to the rank of Rangatira or Chief. At Waihi, when Geordie gained chieftainship in the Tuwharetoa tribe, he gave a public address in Māori and English. Here now is the Tuwharetoa party that performed the kinaki or relish for his speech. Members of the Wellington Anglican Māori Club were thrilled when Sir Bernard conceded to become their patron soon after his arrival in New Zealand. With a deep sadness in their hearts, they sing their special song of farewell.
To the surprise and delight of all at the Whanganui Atara, or Wellington farewell, the Governor-General joined Mr. George Tuo in the choruses of Pōkarekare Ana. Tēnei te porporaki a te reo irirangi. Ahako iti, ahako iti noa. Ki tō tātou ariki, ki tō tātou hoa tūturu, ki tō tātou kawana me tono hoa rangatira. I tēnei te rā, koeha tūnei i a tātou o Aotearoa. This ends the session. A brief tribute of farewell to our esteemed elders, our firm friends, His Excellency, Sir Bernard Ferguson and Lady Ferguson. Archival segment Nga Tonga Kōrero featuring the Purupuruaki of former Governor-General Brigadier Sir Bernard Ferguson. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray and this is Te Ahika. By night, Puawai Ken's moonlights as a musician, but by day she can be found at Te Papatungarua in her new role as Māori creator within the Mātauranga Māori team. Justin went along to her pōhere a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Ah, kia ora. Kia ora, I'll hold your mic. Okay. Are you going to miss... You're from Creative New Zealand, eh? Are you going to miss her? Yeah, heaps. Yeah. She's awesome. <laughs> you're lucky. <laughs> Thank you. See ya. <laughs> Text me. <laughs> 
So poor way. Um, We've just had your whakatau or your pōhiri, mm-hmm. where both sides were obviously, you know, the kaupapa of the ra is to welcome you into te papatongari. Well, what, what does it feel like to kind of be the centre of attention? Oh, that's too much, eh? Oh, I didn't... Yeah, no, it's a little bit overwhelming. Nice words, flash words, too flash for me. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. That's all right. My mum will probably take me... Hey, how are you? Probably bring me back down to earth. Your mum flew in for the occasion. Yeah, choice say. Yeah, she's mean. What time did she fly in this morning, yesterday? She flew in yesterday, um, about nine o'clock, but she was delayed because of the uh, earthquake down in Christchurch. What will be your new role here at Te Papa Tongarewa? I've been lucky enough to get a role here as curator Māori and working in the Mātauranga Māori team. Uh, I'll be responsible for um, researching, scholarship... Uh, acquisition and um, deciding objects that go into an exhibition. So it's pretty big. You've been here before though. Mm. So tell me about your history with Te Papa. I was here, I came here in 2000, late 2006 after working at Te Wānanga Te Aroa. I came here as a concept developer, which is um, a concept developer is a person who kind of develops the exhibition frameworks. So, for instance, the first time around, I developed a couple of exhibitions, well, quite a lot of exhibitions as concept developer. Uh, I, the biggest one I did here was, or well, the two biggest ones I did was the Ngaitahu exhibition, Motato, and the other one was Wales, Wales Tohora. And that was the last one I worked on before I left for Creative New Zealand. And I've been there at CNZ for about nearly four years. So after I finished those shows, went over to Creative New Zealand, and um, that was a really good role because I got to work closely with artists. I went over to Pangopango to the 10th Pacific Festival of the Projects Arts. advisor your mahi was, eh? Policy and projects advisor, yeah. If okay. you had to sum up your four years at Creative New Zealand, um, what were the most standout projects that you worked on? Mm. Uh, the biggest projects I worked on at Creative New Zealand uh, or participated in were the 10th Festival of Pacific Arts in Pangopango, and that was in 2008. Uh, Tuakatoi Awards, which I love dearly, really dearly, dearly love those awards. Um, and the Health of Māori Heritage Arts project, research project, which I designed. So Paul White and, um, you know... <coughs> We're in. We're still in March. It's pretty brand new for 2011. Are you pretty excited about your year this year, having a new mahi, new job? Yeah, yeah. I'll be working in the Matauranga Māori team here at Te Papa. Uh, I think there's around about six or seven people in the team who are responsible for maintenance and care and acquisition of the Māori collection in Te Papa. The Māori collection in Te Papa, I think, actually distinguishes it from any other collection in the world. I mean, there's lots of other really beautiful collections here at Te Papa and very thorough and well... With, they come with a wealth of scholarship. But the Māori collection, because it comes from here, is incre- incredibly special, so I'm feeling pretty humbled to be a part of that team. So we've got a few of the tauranga morning lot coming up. Yeah. Ria, you've worked closely with Paul White. Are you going to miss her? Oh, yes, I was actually telling Arapata how distraught I currently am. Oh, same. But that... that because Jason laid down the tucky, fuck a papa, you better look after you. So <laughs> no, oh, no, it's awesome. For my cousin. It's great. No, it's it's great. She's on track now with her career path, so that's the main thing. And I'll just I'll just come here for feeds and she's gonna be a superstar. She's a superstar. She's gonna be a rock star. No. So I'll be like you know groupies. <laughs> no curators don't have groupies. <laughs> no, the reason I wanted to become a curator. Well, I wanted to become a curator for a long time long, long time. When I first came here, I immediately knew that that was the role I wanted. One, because I'm, I'm a researcher by background. Two, I'm a nerd, so I like rifling away through old collections and stuff. And um, three, it has a degree of creativity in it that it's really difficult to get in other research jobs. But my big plan is stay here for a couple of years. As long as it takes to become pretty, you know, ninja-fied, then hopefully find an overseas museum, go and get some international experience. And then, Tauranga Moana, if you get your museum, I'll come back and I'll work in it. <laughs> okay, I want to come back to home. This is my plan to try and get home. So this is your, what, five-year plan? Oh, ten-year plan? Ten-year plan. Depending how well it goes. Yeah, yeah. But this is the thing. Curating is the thing I'm going to do. I'll be a guitar-playing curator. 
Kia ora, Pua Waikens, no Tauranga Moana. She's Māori curator at Te Papa. Anaira, a pirishasha with the week's Fagataiki. Ko te Fagataiki nei, ahako keifia, ahako afia, ahako pefia, kore rumano. Na, he take nuitira i yata fayatu te bangai paho i te mera i pute i ngā tangata arahi nei i te reo. Ko ngā tangata korona iau, kete kite rāu i taua tōtoru ra i a Pautemara, a Timoti Karetu, a i a te wharehuia, Milroy. Me te hea tūta wahire Māori, here, Maharanaukia, not Wahid Pen, Pene, Miri Miri Pen Fault, Ma, Yamida Sansi, Kurato, Hoki, Tainoki Tautu Henekia, Tedipoa, Hienengato, Yarato, Emeriana, Korero Mountain. Well, we're looking at the, the Fakatoki um, that was obviously, it's, it's a new one because it's just for today, but it says, well, Māori language, no matter where, when or how, talk Māori. And so it's Pākehā words that have been uh, put here by the people before us as uh, Borden. I mean, this is just beautiful to Māori, so you don't have to change the vision statement. Māori language, everywhere, every day, in every way. So it's got a little bit of kind of familiar ring in English, you know, like to use it or lose it. Ko taia no mātou ki te mutunga a te ahikā. That's us for this week. Next week we'll be looking at the efforts of marae around the country and there's many to assist whānau affected by the Christchurch earthquake. And of course, our most sincere condolences to all of the whānau in Ōtautahi. Kia kaha. Kei te tuku aroha tēnei ki te whānau whānui kei te waipaunamu. Kia koutou. E noho ana i raro i te pauritanga i tēnei wā, ko te tūmanako kia pikiake te ora i Wanganui ia koutou. He mihi tēnei ki nga kai kōre rō mō tēnei wiki. Ki tā mātou kai rā wiki wiki mihini, ngā mihi hoki mai hei tērā rātapu. Mai te whānau a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora tātou katoa. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me. Where troubles melt like lemon drops away above the chimney tops, that's where you'll find me. Some people look and find the sunshine I always look and find the rain Some people make a winning sometime I never even make a game Believe me I'm always chasing